Thanks to our sponsor, Walker Digital, who have stepped in to help the Numbers Game podcast with their social media. Walker Digital are a digital marketing agency covering strategy, content, video, implementation, and education. The team at Walker have spread the word of our clients and love working with businesses doing good things, helping them to grow and reach more people so they can scale and get larger. I know personally, the first thing I did when growing our business was to outsource social media, blogs, and copywriting because I knew it was something that was not the best use of my time and the girls at Walker Digital smashed it. Sometimes you need to walk before you can run. Find out more at their website, wlkr.digital. This episode does not class as personal advice. It is general and does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. People may also hold positions in the companies discussed. Welcome to The Numbers Game, Episode 7. I'm Jason and I'm here with Nick and Marty. On today's show, we are going to be talking about philosophy in business, specifically talking about working on your business and not in your business. Marty, how are you traveling today, mate? Mate, I'm absolutely thrilled to be here and I'm going to be talking about the importance of making a decision and the practicalities around that decision in business. Nick, good to see you, buddy. Likewise, and Jace, fantastic effort. Straight off a plane from Perth in to lead the group so well done to you today it's going to be interesting to see how you get through this but um, I'm absolutely pumped because I get to talk about something that I've been through which is knowing when to get off the tools in your business yeah beautiful mate and for anyone who has done the Perth red eye red eye home overnight please give me your advice on how you survive off three hours sleep on a plane uh, I'll also be covering today Nick or we will cover today why doing your own bookkeeping actually doesn't save you dollars it costs you more dollars in the long run so let's play Reading the Play, where each week we bring you some of the best news in business right now, some interesting facts and some pieces of advice. This week, I might get started, guys. Um, I've brought something to the table that's probably really relevant to you boys in mortgage land. Um, On previous episodes, we've talked about the banking space, where banks are trying to get into the buy now, pay later space. We've got buy now, pay later trying to become banks, and we've got all these different tech businesses that are becoming lenders. What I've got today is the news that Real Estate Australia Group or REA Group is looking to purchase Mortgage Choice for a cool sum of $244 million. Now, you boys do this stuff all day, every day, but I'll give you a little bit of the numbers around it, and I'd love your opinion on on what this looks like for the industry and for for REA. They're going after 10% of the market share of the Australia's growing mortgage brokering market. That acquisition actually gets them about 900 new brokers onto their panel of brokers that can do these deals. And they reckon that with their 12 million monthly website visits, they're going to be able to pump a lot of business into these 900 brokers and turn this into quite a bit of a juggernaut of of an acquisition. Now, apart from the numbers, 900, 12 million, which I love numbers, I also love a good vision. Now, the chief executive Owen Wilson said, our vision is to create search, find and finance all in one place. And ultimately our experience will be one that you've got your loan approved. You can then go back to the search process and look at properties that you can afford based on what you've been approved to borrow, which is, you know, sounds like a pretty good user experience. If 2020 taught us anything, it was that consumers are accelerating their demand for a seamless integrated digital experience. And are rewarding organizations who deliver this. So my question is, and lesson here to listeners out there is, what did you learn in 2020? How did it change your business? And what are you doing to stay relevant in 2021 and beyond? And then I'd love to throw to you guys for a comment on your professional opinion of how this affects the the mortgage landscape. 
Um, well, look, I'm happy to comment, and then and then Marty can can follow it up. But I, I challenge, I challenge if they're actually trying to achieve anything outside of just extracting more revenue from their from their lead generation tools. Because one one thing we have learnt being in the mortgage broking space is there is a digital play coming, but there is there's always that need for that personal touch, and and we're experiencing that in our business at the moment. And you've only got to look at some of the digital banks that are out there that just aren't stealing the market share that they hope to steal. So, you know, although um, although it sounds like a digital play, I see the collection of data. Um, this is the second ac- acquisition REA have done prior to, prior, prior to this. Uh, well, they haven't acquired uh, Mortgage Choice yet, but it's on the cards, obviously. But prior to this, there was the Smartline, um, which is a Smartline Group, which is a franchise operation. But I think all they're trying to do is create an army of brokers so they can actually get some uh, get some further revenue from from the lead generation. There's so much website traffic. Who doesn't go to realestate.com uh, to look at um, to look at property? And there's a lot of other partners that they a lot of other service offerings that they offer too. So for me, it's just how do we um, how do how do we maximise the, the revenue out of the lead gen? The actual process, I'm not sure, will change much, Marty, because you've got brokers on the ground who are going to be dealing with the clients, from what I understand, or do you think they will revamp? The whole experience. Yeah, I think it's a clever move because it, history suggests that there's been these organisations that have had lead capture and tried to sell those leads to a bigger market. But there's a lot of a lot of leads that just fall by the way. So I think it's like about two percent or something that actually converts into anything. Might be lower, but it's a high attrition rate. Whereas I really like the execution on that opportunity coming in. So they're going to have to work hard to get the conversion right. People still want to have that that broker experience. But I think it's I think this is what we're going to see into the future. We are open for offers, uh, <laughs> REA, if uh, we've uh, got plenty of brokers out there on the ground. But that but that's a really important that's a really important thing and I've found in the past usually people are great at capturing the leads, can't execute, or fantastic on execution and struggle with getting um, opportunities in the front end. So I think this will be a bigger type play. I think there'll be others that will follow with this play. And we're certainly, even in our own business, uh, we recognise that data capture and lead capture, taking people off the market and actually giving them a client experience digitally prior to purchasing is a really important factor. And there's a value on that as well, but you've got to be able to execute. We think we can. Um, uh, I like the idea. I like what's happened yeah. here. Couldn't agree more. I think both of you touched on that while digital experience is important, that human element and the relationship side, when you are making one of the biggest or the single biggest purchase, purchase of your life, the human element is still really important. There's so much that ties it all together. Solicitors, banks, uh, real estate agents, and the mortgage broker is the one that, in my opinion, in my um and in my history is always the one that ties it all together and is the go-to person. So will you ever get away from that? I'm not sure. I think for some, uh, for a certain percentage of the market, you will, but um, I think brokers will always play a, a really significant role. Yeah, there's so much, uh, there's so much difference in policy that, you know, you need someone that's an expert to be across it. So lead capture is important, but again, relationship with capability to back that opportunity up is is paramount. Reading the play this week, Nick, what have you got for us? Um, well, I've got something I actually want to talk to you about, and it's um, 
it's it's the valuations that uh, we're seeing on tech companies, and this is this has come up because Deliveroo listed uh, on on the stock exchange last week, um, the worst IPO in London's history. It's it, it's been named. So just to give you some numbers, um, the so the business listed at a thirteen billion dollar valuation. So we're talking Australian dollars now. Um, the business as in Deliveroo, has been around since 2013 and is yet to make a profit. However, there is a $13 billion valuation the day it listed. To give you an idea, last year the business lost $400 million in, in, in one year. So on, on opening or when the IPO, when it listed and it opened, uh, it dropped by 26% day one and a further 2% the next couple of days. So basically the first week of listing, it's dropped 30% in value. One of, one of the things that has caused that is you may be aware that, that Uber um, has just lost the court case, that their drivers are now considered employees and not contractors, which exposes Uber to things like um, employee benefits, same as we have in this country. So the theory is that Deliveroo and all these types of delivery business is going to be exposed to the, to the same legislation. So that's, have, that's had a massive impact on how it's performed Um when it's listed, but I just thought it was interesting that you've got a business that's lost 400 million in the last year, has not generated a profit since it started in 2013, lists at a $13 billion, billion valuation, loses 30% of that. So let's say it's you know, worth 9 billion or something. Um, but Jase, yeah, just over to you as an accountant, how do they come up with these valuations when the business has never made any money? Yeah, good question, mate. And look, tech, tech valuations are one of the more interesting ones because- there's no well, valuations in general. There's no exact science to it. It really comes down to what somebody on the market is willing to pay for a slice of that business. Like everything, it's it's two parties exchanging some form of value. A lot of uh, the tech space is based around data, like how much data they hold of their users, what they can do with that data, how much they can on sell, and then also the sheer volume of users. If you've got millions and millions of users, and you know that eventually at some point you're going to be able to not invest so much into the development of the technology and it gets to a point where your users are putting more revenue into the business than what you're having to spend on development of that tech, there's that turning point where the profit comes and it comes thick and fast. So that valuation is the future expected cash flows from the users if they get their model right. Now, obviously, the the buyers of those shares once it went to IPO went, no, nah, we don't. We don't believe that valuation, but we're happy to value it at nine billion, just mm. not thirteen billion. Because people can see, I think Uber's Uber's another prime example that they've got years and years of hundreds of millions of dollars of losses, but it's one of the most valuable companies in the world, mm. based on volume of users, data collection, and the future potential earnings if they can get that right. But you got things like that court case where it all goes wrong, and the valuation takes a, a pretty swift turn. Yeah, well, the margins already um, are so tight with the delivery business, and this is just going to um, create further impact on that. So, yeah, the other watch one, space. the other one as well, like you know, to pr- compare a contrast to like a DoorDash, for example, where DoorDash's IPO went through the bloody roof, and what DoorDash did really well was to talk about the other things outside of just the ability to get some food to your door. They talked about their vision of going anything you want delivered. You're, you're about to do a project in, in the shed and you realize your hammer's broken. You jump on DoorDash to get a hammer delivered. People got excited at the prospect of, I can get someone to jump into Bunnings and get me my hammer. So I, while I'm at home, I can still finish doing the painting. And then the hammer arrives so I can hammer the bloody thing to the wall. Um, so that 
drove part of DoorDash's valuation up through the roof because it's like it's exciting different things that are coming. It's potential of future earnings that people value in and go, yeah, I want in on that. And but they're willing to pay a premium. Jace, isn't that how the tech wreck happened though? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I know they're paying absorbent amounts of money to do this, but again, you know, cash flow is king. That's I, I get, I get the whole principle of it, but um, surely it's very, very speculative. Mm-hmm. Like yep. if you're going in early days, but that's the risk you take, I gather, to get that upside yep. if, if it does come off. But- I think as well, if you've got any kind of IP, like the IP of how that data all flows and you own the IP for a particular way that something works, not only just the valuation and the future revenues, but also the potential for an acquisition by a bigger player up the chain if you are one of the smaller guys, which is, I think, the buy now, pay later space is a tech example where there's so many small players that are doing things, just little intricate differences to the bigger guys up the chain and they may end up getting bought out to eliminate some of the competition down the track. Well, yeah, and we've spoke about this, I think we have, but we spoke about a strategic valuation before on your business and it's not so much about what your business can create, but what does your business mean to someone else and what can someone else do with that data uh, and what revenues can they create in their business based on the information that you have? So so I get it. Someone could see the possibility of that intel and know how to monetize it in their own business, you know, in a bigger business, and exactly they will right. pay for that. Yep. So that, um, that to me, makes more sense. Yeah. Definitely. And, Marty, you've got a bit of an interesting reading to play for us today. What have you got? Well, in a perfect link, I'm going to talk about, you know, Nazi Germany. So I think you'll find this absolutely fascinating. Not just Nazi Germany. This is about it's hard to kill the stock market. And this comes back to the takeaway of long-term progress in a country. And I always think that uh, you look at Germany as a prime example. It's hard to imagine a more wealth-destroying circumstances that happened over the course of 50 years. You know, World War I, the Great Depression. Of course, Hitler does what he does, which is the atrocities that come from there. And also then their stock market was actually frozen between 1941 and 1948. And when it reopened, it was 90% less of the value than when it was at the heights in 41. So a lot of things happened. But the lesson out of this is with collaboration with with nations that wanted to support Germany's rebuild, they went from doing 2.6% growth over 60 years from 1900 to 1960. Um, Then within 10 years, they got most of their losses back. So within a 10-year period, they went from, they had 24.65% compounding growth And then if we look at it over the course of, let's say, 1950 to 2020, on average, the DAX has returned 9.4%. So it's just an interesting scenario that it is very difficult to kill off a market. So when you look at things like COVID and you look at circumstances that happen, um, that long-term play still can work for you. But in this situation, you've got to friggin' survive the bloody Holocaust to even, you know, do anything with it. But but I just wanted to bring that up because it's an extreme. It's an extreme. So it just shows how resilient the market can be and what can be achieved. But you can't go for the short-term play, obviously, and things like that. So just some useless information that I think there's a, there's a simple takeaway there that you can always make money with time in the game. Mm. I think that comes back to what we are talking about in previous episodes about that long, if you have a long-term view of the market, a long-term game plan, and you're not trying to play a short-term game where it's more risky, that those returns have been sustained, whether it's the Australian Stock Exchange or Germany's. Um, the data's there for years and years and years and years. It always 
plays out the same. Exactly right. It's got to be in line with whatever your, you know, I've said it before, what, what's your risk profile? And you don't need, you don't want to be making a move when the time is wrong. So um, have your long-term plan and make sure you stick to it no matter what else is happening. And that uh, comes back to Buffett. He always says you buy great companies at fair value and the whole period's forever. That's what he does. Market comes back, it's a great company, buy, just hold forever. Yep. Really simple but effective. We'd love to hear from you. Send us an email, hello at thenumbersgamepodcast.com.au. All right, now it's time for my favourite segment. I hope it's your favourite segment too, Losing It. And today we're going to be chatting with Nick Riley about things you can do in business that you give time to and how to delegate more effectively. Sometimes we we tend to lose money because we try and do everything in the business without seeing the vision of going, actually, we can actually do better if we delegate more effectively. So over to you, Nick. Thanks, Martin. Uh, I wanted to tell this story because it's uh, it, it's obviously involves me and we're talking about philosophy in business with a theme of, of getting off the tools. And uh, a specific example that I can give is for many, many years, I did my own bookkeeping. Um why did I do that? I had a uni degree in accounting. I understood the books and I've mentioned before, but Saturdays for me was going in for two or three hours and doing my own bookkeeping. Um, now, I didn't enjoy it. One thing it did do for me is it did give me a really good view and a really good handle on what was happening in the business. Cash flows in and out. Um, you know, what what were we paying for certain things? Could, could we save money in other areas? So, I, I will say that it is great for that understanding your own books, but you can also get across that with someone else doing it. So what I'm what I'm saying to people is understand what your value is in the business. So you know if, if we're talking about a Saturday morning, and again this is specific to my industry. So you know as a mortgage broker on a Saturday morning, I could have gone into the office and done two loan appointments. Now you on a loan appointment um, might take an hour and a half, two hours. The gross revenue on that, depending on the loan amount, might be anywhere from two to 3000 So if I sit back and look at it now, I could have gone into the office and spent four hours with two clients and generated anywhere from maybe four to $6,000 in revenue. Instead, what I chose to do was go into the office and do my books on a Saturday morning, which I probably could have outsourced for maybe 100 bucks an hour. Jace, you can probably help me out there. That's probably too much, 100 bucks an hour. So it, it, it was having the mindset of saving money, not having the mindset of, well, what can I make in, in a period and what is my dollar value to the business versus what I can outsource? And as I said before, you could have easily caught up with your bookkeeper once a week for half an hour and got across everything. These days with, um, uh, with systems like Xero and Myob, you can run any report you want to understand what's going on in your business. And it goes a step further, and Marty, you and I were talking about this yesterday, and it might not just be what is your value in the business and how much revenue can you generate, but what is the value of your time? And we spoke about family. You know, for me, I was single at the time, so giving up Saturday mornings wasn't a big issue. If I had kids, that might have been a different, that might have been a different story. Four hours in the office, which I could outsource for anywhere from $200 to $400, or four hours at home with the kids. So for me, it was all about losing revenue at the time. And um, it's something that you still need, well, personally, I still need to work on. Um, the next thing for me is an EA. I don't have an EA at the moment. So, you know, I do spend a lot of time on emails, which happens at night. So I need to get that time back, whether it's time with my wife or, you know, time spending more time on the business, generating more revenue. So it's a constant battle. 
And I'm not saying I'm perfect at it, but that was one thing I learned and I'm still trying to learn it. I'm still learning today, um, you know, and looking at what's the next step. And that's probably an AA for myself to get away from replying to emails and looking at only things that are on, that, that are important. A yeah, few questions that pop into my head, Nick, as an avid learner of all things business. And as I said, I've said in the past, like I get a lot of knowledge from you and Marty that I can apply myself. What was the turning point? You're doing your own bookkeeping. You're going in on a Saturday. What was the turning point? And this may flow into the one percenters. So, you know, listeners, stay tuned. There's plenty of value coming. But what made you realize that you had to stop doing the bookkeeping to start doing other things in the business? That tipping point to go enough's enough. Look, it's 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 hard to pinpoint a tipping point. I just think as as I became more educated, as I started to understand what sort of revenue could be created, it just became clear to me. Mm. But I would say it was purely just naivety in business and it was all about, you know, I'm a, got an accounting background and I understand cash flows. For me, it was all about saving money. So was there a, a turning point? Look, I'm not going to say there was. I think it was me just being more educated and becoming more mature in business and starting to understand my true value and what I could do as a revenue generator rather than a, than a doer or a task doer. You know? yeah. I wrote down education because it's just one of the like, – when we bring on a new client in accounting land, the bookkeeping is something that we talk to our clients about. Go, well, who does the bookkeeping? You know, me, it's usually oh, me or my wife or, you know, I, I don't do it to the end of the quarter, so I don't really know what my numbers are day to day. And one of the things we talk about is that education piece. And I agree that it is really important for a business owner to understand their own profit and loss and know the dollars in, dollars out to a certain point. And whether that's being across it with a bookkeeper or doing your bookkeeping in the initial really early periods as you get an understanding of your business and how it works, and then as soon as it's viable, outsource that. And it, it doesn't stop. As I said, it does not stop. And I just told the, the EA story. And the reason this has come up for me recently is not because of emails. My tax is overdue this year. So I'll put my hand up. My tax is overdue. So... I had to spend pretty much a day sitting down and pulling everything together. You know, there's um, there's some property, there's some share stuff, there's some uh, investments I've made that aren't um, that aren't on the on the ASX, so it's harder to get that now. If I had someone organising that for me throughout the year, and I was just sending stuff to them as I did it, they probably would have come to me at the end of June 30 and said, "Here it all is." Instead, I had to spend a day over the Easter break putting all that together. Now, did I want to do that? No. Um, I probably would have paid a few hundred dollars for someone to do that if I could have the full Easter break. So no one's perfect, but you know you just always look for ways that you can free up your time so you can focus on the high value uh, activities. Geez, it's hard hitting listening to you talk about that, Nick, because like I, I think over the journey I've been in business pretty much since I was 27 myself, and it's 21 years now. But just some of the sacrifices, and I, I wonder whether how much of those sacrifices were necessary. Um, just by staying in and doing so many things within the business that I could have delegated out earlier. And I think, um, you know, sometimes it's a matter of guilt. Maybe we're worried about, you know, paying someone for something we could do, like you suggested. But I think about, like, and I feel bad in hindsight, because even I said to my wife, Colleen, I said, you know, I'm a, I'm a business owner. This is going to be something that's going to run me pretty hard. But that's a little bit of a lack of, intelligence mixed in with fear and maybe a little bit of shame as well because again you've got to make a decision you have to make a decision of what you want the business to do for you Mm. and again if you're in eight different segments in the business 
and you're working hard already and you put more pressure and that business grows, guess who gets stretched? It's you. And you carry that responsibility as the leader. But I don't think that's always effective leadership. Leadership is really good delegation and also just understanding when is the right time to delegate and never feels the right time when you're coming from fear or thinking about saving money. I think what what really you need to do is to have these highlight points in your business and a transition period, similar to when you leave a job. Like for me, it was when I left my job to start a business, that was a six-month transition because I wanted to have the right amount of money in the account and then I was going to start the business with that money in the account so it wasn't going to put a stressor on the, on the business or the clients I saw. The same thing in delegating into more team members. The same, same transition, the guilt because being the revenue driver and it's ego as well, a little bit of ego going, I've generated a lot of business for this, you know, for this business. So it's like, it's, it's also letting go. And maybe someone can't do your job 100% as effectively as you could, but they could do it 75% and with the right development, they'll end up doing it 10 times better than you. And it's trusting in the right people to take on those roles. But otherwise you just get, there's only so much you can take. And I think it's a really important conversation because I see this with business owners time and time again. But ask the question, what do you want your business to do for you? What's your value in the business? And identify that because when you're not generating income directly, you have to understand what your value to the business will be. Will it be the ambassador of the business, like bringing you opportunities to the people that are going to write the opportunities? You, you need to actually map that out and then have a transitional plan so you can identify with yourself in that role in the transition of it because otherwise you're going, oh, well, I'm not as good as I was because I'm not bringing in a couple hundred grand a year. You know, I'm, I'm here now. If, so, so to me, for instance, um, I look at it, even, even dealing with a number of brokers now, I look at progressing them forward. So I have key criteria. I want to progress people, productivity, profits, performance, and every day I'm going down the line working on those with all the group. And my statistics are based on their performance. So I've transitioned my client interactions on winning the deal to supporting them win the deal. So my broker wins, that's my win. So you have to get that identity in your own head shifted to how's it going to motivate you now in this new leadership role. And that's that's really important. Not always easy to do, but um, yeah, I, I think... What we're talking about here is a big problem for a lot of business owners. And you've got to decide, do you want to be a consultant and get the resources around yourself so you're the front of the business, or do you want to build a business? And they're, they're two, both are okay, but they're two different things. So I hope that makes some sense. Yeah, definitely. I think what Nick started off with losing it is really tied into our one percenter, which is around working on your business and not in your business, which is you've highlighted a lot of amazing things there that my mind's racing as someone who's felt like the consultant, I'm giving all the advice, I'm the front man in the appointments, I'm the guy people want to book in with. And then same as my business partners, you know, Greg and Shelly are the same, we're booked, people want to see us. And it got to a point where we grew and we grew and now we're at a business the size of, I think we're 19, a team of 19, team member 20 starts next week. Um, and we're still too heavily tied into the day-to-day operations of the business, which has become quite frustrating because- I don't think, you know, my honest assessment of being in business five years in learning as I'm going and, and, and you know, no one's perfect and, and it no. is a, it's a difficult thing to do. 
I don't think we communicated the turning point between me, me and the directors being consultants working in the business to becoming business owners that want to grow a business and have a team of people that support us and support the lives of our clients. I mean, we exist to have our clients have better financial futures. The, the pain point provides the opportunity yeah. to, to change. And yeah. that's, that's the brilliant position you're in. And I think if, and like I said, in transition, it might be you look after the top 10% of your clients mm. for the next 12 months. But then your, your engagement with your client is that this person is going to be able to service you much better than I can given you know, my, my time. Um, so, so there's, you know, there, there's a transition point and there's a strategy within the transition that you can then step your way out to, you know, being the owner of the company. And that's mm. the ultimate aim a lot of the time. I think Nick, you touched on it as well, that it's being okay with going backwards before you go forward. Because if you, if you think that you're driving the re revenue, you know, you were the guy doing the broker meetings you know, you were locking in those deals, generating revenue for the business. I think, you know, having watched your business journey over the years, your ability to transition off the tools, I'd love to know a little bit more about that journey of yeah. becoming not the revenue generator and, and taking a step back. Yeah. And look, for me, it was very much what Marty said. It was, um, it was, it was the pain point and, and seeing what had to happen. But in hindsight now, I think anyone who's new to business or who's um, looking at starting a business with knowledge like this, and you know, everyone talks about work on your business, not in your business, you can you can actually make it part of your plan. And I think that's what you need to do. So if you're putting a business plan together, the first thing you need to decide is, you know, are I'm, am I looking for a job or am I looking to grow a business or an asset? And if you're looking to grow a business or an asset, your plan has to be to build people around you because you cannot, you cannot scale a business that's solely reliant on you as bringing the income in. So the first thing you need to decide is, well, do, do I just want to work? and get a good income. And in that case, should I just be working for someone else? Or do I actually want to grow an asset? And if you do, part of your business plan should include you stepping away from being the main revenue driver. And what I found is you, I had to become the educator, particularly in the initial stages, but the key to making all this work is personnel. If you don't have the right personnel to come in and help you out or to come in and Right uh, in, in our case, write loans or do financial plans. In your case, JC, um, see people and do tax returns and whatnot. Then you're never going to be able to to step out. So it becomes for me, it became more about personnel and how do I number one get the right personnel, and then number two train them, and then number three get my existing clients comfortable. Um, and the way I did that was it was it, it was a slowly slowly approach. So. You know, I, I looked at ways at, that I could still be part of the process, but not do much of the the work. Um, and you know, in our situation, that was hold meetings and hold meetings only, and then someone else came in and did the work. But someone would come into those meetings with me. So that's just an example. Marty talked about work, working on the top ten percent. Slowly over time, my existing cl clients became more comfortable with the second person that was working on the file, and then I would just you know, fade away. And, you know, I still get phone calls and whatnot, but it's not going to happen overnight. You need to, you need to develop mm. a plan to exit yourself. And once you've, once you stop, well, the first thing you need to do is start to say that you're not going to take on any more new clients. And then it's just a matter of how do you stop working on the ones that are used to working with you? So there's a few things and I'll be going for ages about this, about the things I've learned, but, you know, 
you asked Jace, knowing when it's time to get off the tools, is it is is it emotional or is it cash driven? So for me, it was emotional in, in in the fact that I wanted to build a business. So I didn't want to be a mortgage broker anymore. Um, so I wasn't enjoying what I was doing day to day. I needed that next challenge. Um, the other thing you talked about was going backwards, and you have to be prepared to go backwards. The trap that we get in when you're the sole revenue driver is you earn more and more money each year generally as you become better at your craft and you pick up more clients. So you're traditionally just going to earn more money, but you will eventually cap out. So it becomes hard for people to then step away and invest in more resources to come in and help you out. You just become used to, okay, I'm earning 100000 now I'm earning 120. Now I'm earning 150 and now 150 is what I need to fuel my life or fund my life. So you need to stick to your plan and be prepared to take a step back and invest in the business, um, which is why I think it's imperative that it's part of the initial plan so you can check in with it and say, okay, well, no, this is where I was going to reinvest. So Yeah, that transference of trust with the clients is really important. I think that's that's undervalued. A lot of people go, I don't want to do this anymore, but then they go, here, you do it, <laughs> and, mm. and that doesn't work. So it's really important to have a strategy around that for your clients. And I also just, just in uh, – it's fascinating listening to Nick because he's gone through all the different stages. I've gone through some of – I think Nick's executed um, really well, and he would even say that I could have done it quicker. But um, I, I think he's done really well. But I think the thing you've got to draw confidence on is you said I've got to take a step backwards to move forwards you're actually moving forward and you've got to back yourself and your abilities to be just as successful as what you were as let's say a mortgage broker or an accountant developing the skill sets to be a business owner so that transitional plan is important but again I, I spoke to a lady amber Wirchin in on the sunny coast she runs um her own real estate arm very very successful real estate agent and i asked her that same thing i said how did you go by producing so much revenue for the business and then, you know, coming back and running a team and stepping away from it? Because you just earned so much. She was highly successful. She still is. And she goes, well, I just made that decision and then I created a plan on how it would be mm. successful. So she goes, I never went backwards. I just, I just, this was the transition period. I had a plan and I executed like I would a real estate agent, a successful real estate agent. So I used all those attributes, got more resources around me to execute now as a business owner. I thought, but, but in our minds, we're thinking because the business in those early days are so dependent on you in generating that income, we think that's all it's ever going to be at some level. And then, and Nick said it well, we worry about, we sustain ourselves with some income and then we want to you know, keep having that. But sometimes you've got to make that decision. You've got to create a plan around the decision and you just got to go for it and make it work. And I think that's key. And hi, look, hi, hindsight's a wonderful thing, but you know, I, I go back to the bookkeeping. It took me a while to work that out. And when you think about it now, it's just madness that I was doing that. But it's hard to get past that cost base straight away that's money coming out of your pocket that hasn't happened before but talking about backing yourself every business business owner is short on time and if you asked any business owner um if they could have anything they wanted they'd probably say more time Mm. so imagine if you had more time to do what you're good at doing which is generating business which is why you're a business owner when you when you spell it out like that it's almost a no-brainer that's right Um, you just need to sit down and spell it out and I think back yourself, you know, you've made it work 
so far. Yeah. So you'll make it work again. It's just a different challenge. Yeah, you've got to you've got to make that decision, be headstrong on that decision. And also you've got to have a real understanding. When we've talked about this in previous episodes, business sort of encapsulates your whole life. Mm. So you really have to be really clear on your personal goals and relationships as well. Like I know I haven't maintained friendships that I had prior to being in business because of time. You know, like you said, time with family. They haven't spent as much time there. So you look in hindsight, you can't get that time back and they do atrophy those relationships if you're not putting work into it like you do your business. So you have to have those goals to really look at the people important in your life, your personal goals, and how does the business fit in with that as well? Because we can get hell-bent on just going for it in business, which you need to do, but again, you can't be at the expense of everything else in your life. Yeah. Really important. Oh, yeah, it's, that is really really important, really true. Um, I had a bit of a, an awakening moment recently at a funeral where um, the lady whose mother had passed away at 62 said, you think you've got more time and then it's gone. So mm. don't take the time that you have got for granted. And then I look at, you know, the way we often run our lives and the relationships we sacrifice because we're stuck in our business and we're work, you know, we're working to have a better future. But it's important to make sure that if you can make a decision to free up your time, which is your most valuable asset, then you've got to start to put those plans in place to do that so that you can focus on the important things in life. One of my mentors said to me, you're great at running businesses, but you're crap at having fun. Mm. And I was really a lot of fun up until 28, <laughs> until I got <laughs> serious about business. You know, I was into sports and everything. And I think you know, a couple of neck injuries, I transferred playing sports seven days a week into business. So I loved the camaraderie. So I, I found my invigoration in business, but I also realized that I gave so much of myself to the business as well. So he was, he was really, he's a great mentor of mine. He just basically honed me in on what's important. And I think- Again, we've, it's really important to decide what that is for yourself, but I've been slowly getting back into that fun side of myself, which is good. I think the other thing to mention too is we were talking about um, getting time back and you know that could be working on your health or working with your mm. family. Like One of the things that I have found is since I've got a team of experts around me, my business has just gone to a completely different level. And there's a few reasons. It's obviously um, a scalability thing, but I think it's also – different energy levels you know you've got different skill sets coming in you've got you've got younger people who have got higher energy levels than I have at my age so you know I think I think you need to understand that you need to look after yourself outside of the business as well which means you're probably going to perform better in the business and there's also other people who you can bring into the business that may just do things better than you and the sooner you understand that and accept that um, you know I think the happier you will be and the quicker your business will grow. Yeah, if you're the smartest person in the room, there's a problem. Mm -hmm. Exactly <laughs> you, right. You've got to get good people around you that know more. So to maintain relationships and, and have more time, the ability to say no is something that I've really struggled with over the years. And, you know, I say yes and try and figure out later at the expense of my health, my time, my relationships. You know, what what is it about saying no that, that is so difficult, Nick? Um. I think for most business owners, we're all hard workers and we all want to make people happy and we all think we need to make people happy for our business to grow. But I think you, what happens is when you start to bring in experts and outsource things in your own business is you almost lose your identity. So your identity in that business was the main man, the revenue driver, 
the person that came in and did a heap of loan applications or a heap of tax returns or financial plans or whatever it was, and you lose that identity. And if you're a hard worker, it's almost a feeling of guilt. And I, I can still say that it happens today. Like sometimes you get to the end of the day when you're indirectly working on the business and what you do that day doesn't directly relate to a revenue uh, to revenue coming in. There's almost a level of guilt and you've got to sort of check yourself and say, well, no, that's that's not my role. This is my new identity in the business and I'm working on bigger things that are going to bring revenue in at, at a later stage. So for me, the hardest thing was guilt um, because you know, sitting down writing out applications feels like you've worked hard, whereas sometimes now you get to the end of the day, you've been on the phone all day, you don't feel like you've worked hard. So it's understanding your own identity and being comfortable with it and then you know, don't feel guilty that you're not sitting there directly creating revenue every hour of the day because you're working on bigger things. So. Lots of takeaways from today's episode. Marty, what have you got for the wrap-up? To me, it's about in business making a strong decision and then executing on that decision, having the confidence to do so. Nick, what have you got? Uh, for me, it's understanding what you're going in, into business for. Are you trying to create a business and an asset or are you looking for a job? And for me, mate, as a owner of an accounting firm that also does bookkeeping, it was outsourcing your bookkeeping and then more broadly <laughs> going on to outsourcing the things that as a business owner, you should not be doing to free up your time for the more valuable things, whether it is driving revenue or running the business or spending time with your family. Guys, that's been episode seven of The Numbers Game. Thank you for listening again this week. You can reach us, hello at thenumbersgamepodcast.com.au. We look forward to hearing from you. Thank you. Bye for now.